It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with baseball wise guy Gene McCaffrey next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are gone. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April 22nd. It's show number 27 of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with the baseball wise guy, Gene McCaffrey, about bullpens, injuries, facts and flukes, and more. We'll also have these commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about using leverage index to help us in our search for a team's next closer. And in the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com prospects analyst Rob Gordon talks about Giants right-handed pitching prospect Kyle Crick. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout Edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's fantasy baseball season. We gotta talk some baseball. And to start our show, our feature interview with our Tuesday Tout. He's a longtime fantasy baseball authority and the author of the Wise Guy Baseball Annual and a favorite guest of our show, Gene McCaffrey. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick. Great to, always a pleasure to be here. Let's start by uh, checking in with your expert league teams. I know you're in Tout Wars and some others. How are your teams doing? Um, kind of middle of the package, but I'm, I'm happy about Tout Wars. Uh, I was a little concerned about my offense, and you know how that goes. You know, you think your pitching's great, and the pitching's not so great, and the offense is better than I expected, so as long as the pitching comes around, I think I'm going to be fine. Got a good chance to win, I think. Uh, do you ever use the um, projected standings feature? I know that uh, Tout Wars is at onroto.com, and one of the things they have as a kind of a added bonus feature is that you can look ahead using, I think, two different sets of projections and see how um, Ron Chandler's BaseballHQ.com projections and Clay Davenport's projections have you finishing. Do you ever use that tool? I have never used it. I didn't know that it existed. Oh. I'll have a look at it for fun. I don't know how much uh, stock I'd put in it, but sure, I'll have a look at it for fun. I find it, I, I agree with you that you have to really take those kind of things with a grain of salt, especially at this stage of the game. But I like looking at them to the extent that I like to know where I'm either really dead or really way ahead and have in a category because it's not going to be that wrong. You know what I mean? If, if it shows that I'm 30 or 40 stolen bases clear of the pack, I feel pretty comfortable that I can trade a stolen base guy. And conversely, if I'm you know 19 or 20 wins behind the last point in, in wins, I know pretty much I'm dead there uh, because Clay, Davenport, and Ron Chandler are not going to make orders of magnitude errors like that. Yeah, I think on a, on a broad basis, I think that's correct. I mean, the only thing, the, the only other factor you have to consider is injuries. Um, but sure, yeah. You know, you'll be 30, 40 stolen bases ahead until Ben Revere goes down or D Gordon goes down, and then all of a sudden, gulp. <laughs> um, but yeah, in broad strokes, I agree with that. I know you really like the salary cap games. You said before that you think they're the most honest or thorough representations of what it takes to win in fantasy baseball. Uh, do you have a team going this year, and how are you doing there? Um, I do have a team going. It's sort of a mix-and-match thing. My uh, my pitching hasn't been that great, but it's because I haven't gotten a lot of two-start weeks, and this is a big week for that team, so we'll see. You know, I have a lot of pitchers pitching twice, and we'll see what happens with that. Um, uh, I've been ahead of the curve on it. I'm a little surprised, but my overall numbers are pretty good. It's just that, you know, at this stage of the game, there's so many anomalies. You know, there's people who have ERAs under two and a half and whips well under one, and that's not going to last. So as, as we come to the back, I think I'll rise quickly. I have an American League-only team whose team ERA is under two, and my whip is under one, and that's because I've got guys like Jason Vargas and Zach McAllister just astonishing the world with uh, like these weird, excellent performances, and I'm uh, I'm sure they're going to change, but I'm a full run clear in ERA, so I may just hang on to them and... and and hope to get some wins out of that, out of those sort of borderline starters. That I don't think they can kill my ERA. I think I can't lose the category because I have uh, this fantastic floor already set underneath the the two ratio categories. 
Exactly. I, I was just going to say, I mean, if you could sell Vargas high, I would. I don't know that that many people would be would be buying it, but um, he's already earned his money. I mean, you can drop him now. You know, if he, if he goes off the deep end, which he probably will, um, you don't have to sit there and take all his bad stuff. I mean, you could probably get a middle reliever and plug him in, and that roster slot's going to be a nice asset for you at the end. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. That even in an only league, the uh, opportunities with middle relievers, especially as you get partway into the season and you think to yourself, geez, I don't want to give up on Jason Vargas's potential six or seven more wins, but I could easily get six or seven more wins if I pick uh, a decent middle reliever on a solid team. Yeah, especially a middle reliever who's pitching more innings, maybe one on his team, you know, Aaron Crow or something like that might right. be available. Yeah, and they usually are. That's the good thing about middle relievers in general is that you can always mix and match them uh, and either ride the hot hand or try to find a guy who's... Uh, maybe even in line for some saves. It certainly gets into the game late enough that vulture wins are a real possibility. Uh, Gene, have you seen any trends in the real game of baseball so far this year that you think are going to or possibly going to have an effect on fantasy competition? Well, I'm not sure how much effect they'll have, uh, but strikeouts are up again, really up again, from their previous all-time highs, and we're almost just a touch under eight strikeouts per nine innings, which is unprecedented in yes. Major League history, and I think it's for real. Um, practical application is is that your pitchers who you think are great strikeout guys aren't going to be that great. You know, you just need more of them, and just bear it in mind that, um, you know, seven strikeouts per nine innings is not good enough anymore. I was going to say the, uh, the eight strikeout per nine inning rate, I can remember not that long ago where that would have been a very high strikeout pitcher, in fact, and now if that's the league average, we've got to recalibrate our expectations across the board on strikeouts. Now, have you had a chance to look at, is it a case of the lower strikeout guys moving up and catching up with the top strikeout guys, or is the uh, rising tide lifting all the boats? Are the former nine strikeout guys becoming 11 strikeout guys? Um, it seems to me to be across the board. I mean, there are a few, there are a few anomalies. It's really hard to tell at this time of year. Um, with some pitchers, because there are, you know, although they're up a lot, there's a, there are vast differences in team strikeouts. You know, I mean, everybody knows that the Astros strike out a ton, um, the Mets strike out a lot, the Dodgers, who have a really good offense, strike out a lot. On the other hand, the Royals don't strike out, the Rangers don't strike out, the Rockies and Coors Field don't strike out. So that's something that you have to watch. You know, it could be. You know, if you're if one of your pitchers has pitched twice against the Astros and his strikeout rate is really high, it doesn't mean that much. Right. Um, and, and conversely, if one of your guys is low but he's faced the Royals twice, um, bear that in mind. But other than that, it seems to me to be across the board. In general, uh, how do you know whether something that looks like a trend is a trend versus perhaps just being an anomaly that will sort itself out in the uh, fullness of time? Well, good question, and um, sometimes you don't know. Uh, but what I look for is consistency, you know, across the board. Look at the splits. Look at, you know, home road. Look at, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, starters and relievers. In the case of strikeouts, you know, is is it one or is it the other or is it is it across the board? In this case, it is does seem to be across the board anyway in the in the small samples that we've got. But you know, league wise, the samples are not that small, so that's why I think with consistency, it's for real. And one final question on this matter, Gene: When you look at these trends and identify something like an increased strikeout rate or run scoring being up or down. Do the trends matter differently in the more standard fantasy formats like Roto versus the salary cap games that you also play? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I think that they, you know, they, there may be a little bit of relative difference, but it's small, and um, you're competing against, you know, different. Uh, you know, there's different levels of stats that you need, um, and so it does apply. It, it, across the board, I think, no, there is no difference. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with The Wise Guy. It's Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. And Gene, uh, since fantasy games began, the measure of success has always been the season. Even back in Stratomatic days, I know people still play that. I can remember playing a sim game that was based on, that was issued by Sports Illustrated and had player cards and so forth, but you were always playing a season. Uh, you had games and series, but the season was the defining, and of course, the same thing is true of ordinary fantasy formats that we've long played for these last 25 or 30 years since they invented rotisserie. 
And for the last couple of years, however, we're starting to see these new formats uh, in fantasy play that feature shorter time frames. Daily games are really well established now. We're starting to see monthly games. Uh, Ron Chandler's ChandlerPark.com is running games on a monthly basis. What are your thoughts on these short-term contests? Um, I like them. Um, I haven't played them that much this year because I'm still getting used to all the guys. You know, at the beginning of a season for me, it takes me a couple of weeks, three weeks to get used to all the guys that I have on my teams. Um, so, and I don't usually indulge in those games until I'm more secure in what I need to know and what I need to be doing on my regular teams where I feel I can afford to branch out a little bit and not spread myself too thin. Uh, but yeah, I like them. I think they're, um, I think they're interesting and, and fun. How much do you think is the case that uh, these daily games, the shorter-term format games, particularly daily, are still a game of skill versus a game of chance, which means gambling? And uh, maybe are they somewhere in between gambling with skill or skill with gambling? Uh, where do you think they fall on that skill versus chance continuum? Well, I think that in any one night, there's obviously huge amount of luck. You know, that's why the baseball season is 162 games, because there's so much luck involved in any one baseball game. But that said, I think that over the course of a season in the daily games, there's probably less luck because what we're doing is when at the beginning of the season, we're figuring out the percentages and betting based on the percentages. This player, you know, has a 60% chance to do this and a 40% chance to do that. But once you pick your team, that's it. Um, With the daily games, you can be relentless in playing the percentages. Aha! You know, it's only one night, but over the course of a season, you you know, you're playing the percentages a hundred times. They're more live, and they're more likely to come true. So I think that over the long haul, the daily games are perhaps, there's less luck involved in them, I think. How do you think strategy and tactics will differ as the time frame changes? You have a daily game strategy. It's not going to be the same as your yearly full uh, full season game. But how particularly do you think the that you might want to adjust your approach to roster building and, and team management? Well, of course, it depends. With the daily games, it depends on the site. Um, you know, there are some sites where you only have one pitcher. I think that's FanDuel. And then there's uh, DraftKings where you have three. Um, so obviously, if you only have one pitcher, that guy is really important. Um, so you you have to have a good pitcher. I mean, he doesn't have to be the most expensive pitcher, but it has to be a, he has to be a good pitcher, and he has to be in good circumstances. Um, with the three pitcher format, you can afford to take a chance on uh, on a cheaper guy, um, and therefore build up your offense a little bit more. Um, so it depends on the site, I think. And why do you think, besides the fact that uh, shorter games obviously are the uh, give you the immediate results and the quick rush that a lot of people seem to like when they're playing these things, but why don't you think anyone has put together a longer-term game, maybe where you, t- you draft your team and have a reserve list and so forth over a five- or ten-year span? Because that would certainly prove out to be uh, the best fantasy baseball manager would have a much better chance of winning than uh, even a, in a daily game. Well, you might see it. I mean, most of these sites are pretty new, um, so as time goes on, you might see something like that. Um, and, of course, you know, in, in our games, we have dynasty leagues and keeper leagues, and I think that that serves, that, uh, serves the long-term function, and, and I think there's something for everybody these days, and that's great. I don't know if this is a trend or not, Gene. Uh, we have seen a ton of change in closer roles already this year. Uh, all three of the closers I drafted at Tout Wars are no longer closing games because of injury and poor performance. I know you have some pretty strong opinions about bullpen management. We've talked about it in person over the years. What do you think is going on with the bullpen turmoil this year in particular? Well, I think it's just happening at the beginning of the season. It's not that different than it's been the last few years. Um, it's just, uh, I mean, it's so ridiculous. The, the seventh inning guy, the eighth inning guy, the ninth inning guy. The waste of talent that's going on here with these pitchers who are, you know, in some cases the closer is the team's best pitcher. The guy protecting a three-run lead to get three outs, it's just, it's just mind-bogglingly inefficient. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. There's a, there's a little bit of an economic argument. If this was, you know, in a free market, somebody would have adjusted, uh, you know, addressed this years ago. But baseball's sort of a cartel, and and the normal economic rules of inefficiency don't seem to apply, and they won't apply until somebody decides that, hey, this is not making sense. 
I've got nothing to lose. You know, I'm the Astros or something like that. I'm going to start using my best relievers pitching more. And not only are they going to pitch more, but they're going to be better rested pitching more. They're not going to be throwing in the bullpen and not coming into games. They're not going to be pitching three days in a row for one inning. They're going to pitch one day and go through the order once, you know, pitch three innings or two innings, and then you have two days off or three days off. Um, It just seems to me that some team has to do this at some point. And by doing it, they're going to win, and then everyone will imitate them. Um, I've been predicting it for years, but it hasn't happened. So, Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Confident. We've all been uh, predicting it. Somebody's going to try it sooner or later. I remember, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, talking about this issue. The 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 uh, Red Sox tried it a few years ago with disastrous results, mostly because they didn't have good enough pitchers in any of the roles to mix and match or to do, uh, you know, seventh inning bases loaded, bring in your best guy type situations because their best guy just wasn't good enough. And then everybody said, see, the model doesn't work. And in fact, the problem wasn't that the model didn't work. The problem was that they didn't have the right pitchers to to apply the model. But why hasn't, for instance, Oakland done this? They're, they don't seem to be at all afraid of of doing things differently, of of mixing and matching in other areas of their roster building. Why are they? Why is everybody so reticent about uh, taking this step, which seems? Uh, common sense that instead of getting 60 innings out of Craig Kimbrell in a year and getting a bunch of three-run three, uh, three run leads protected in the ninth against the bottom of the order, why isn't Craig Kimbrell pitching 115 innings a year and all of them in high leverage situations? Well, I think the main reason is, is that people do not want to make decisions. They don't want to take responsibility for something that's a little bit different. But, you know, when you consider 10 years ago, it really wasn't like this. 20 years ago, it was nowhere near like this. Um, so I think somebody's got to have the stones to get up there and, and do it, and it will only take one guy. Um, the Royals last year were a perfect team to do it with, where they really did have a, an excellent bullpen, and they were perfectly situated to do it. And I think that if they had done it, they might have contended. Because they were, I think they ranked 28th in the, in the major leagues in relief innings, whereas if they had ranked first, you know, they didn't have a great rotation, but they did have a great bullpen. They weren't that close. They weren't that far away at the end. They could have contended. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I. But I do think that, and it's not only in baseball. I think you see it all over. People don't like to take responsibility for, for their decisions. If everybody's doing something the same way, okay, well that's the way it is, and it'll be that way until it's until they're beaten into the ground and have to do something different. Yeah, I, I often wonder if there's some some part of the issue is. If you do something and it doesn't work out, but you played by the book, you have you have uh, an uh, opportunity to cover your behind when you're dealing with the media. And they say, you know, if you if uh, somebody takes this tack where they're going to use their best pitcher and he gets through, but then the fourth best pitcher does blow the three run lead in the ninth, then the media are going to crucify whatever manager made that decision. Whereas if the same exact thing happens and his closer blows that lead, he can say, hey, he's my closer. You know, I played it by the book and the book didn't work out, but I'm I'm therefore not culpable for the problem. And uh, maybe it's a, a bit of media relations issue. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I think that's uh, I think that's the main reason that people don't want to take responsibility because they're not going to be called out on the carpet for it. But you know, the media itself could change that if they wanted to because there's so many. You know, silly. You know, the other night, the, the, the White Sox, the, the, they, all these teams have eight relievers, and they still run out of pitchers. And they have to use a pro, <laughs> position right. player to do it, and they're forever shuttling these stiffs back and forth from AAA. Um, <laughs> uh, why doesn't the media take off after that? I mean, it's so obviously wrong, and it's obviously not working. Um, but they don't seem to think of it either. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Could, could be, be a, uh, welcome to 2014. It could be a, an issue that we're st- that we're still waiting for the influence of younger reporters who are more comfortable with these measures, uh, pushing aside or, or replacing the older guys who who do believe in the book and do believe in the save and the closer, even though they're relatively new concepts. Uh, the save statistic was not invented uh, back with Babe Ruth or uh, you know uh, Cy Young himself or anything like that. And uh, maybe it just takes time for new blood to get into the rep- repertorial ranks as well as into the man- management ranks. Uh, you know, Gina. Uh, every time I get into this conversation, the guy whose name pops immediately into my head is Mike Marshall, 
who pitched uh, for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And listen to this set of statistics from his Cy Young year in 1974. He had no starts. No starts. Keep that in mind. 106 appearances and 208 and a third innings pitched. Over that time, he managed a 2.42 ERA. His whip was 119, and he had 15 wins and 21 saves. That's making use of a great asset in the most intelligent possible way. He didn't get those wins starting. He got them all in relief, which means he was coming in in very high leverage situations. He must have been. It doesn't. There's no other way for it to 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 make any sense. And if you had a pitcher like uh, who, who's an example, Aroldis Chapman before he got hit in the face, why isn't Aroldis Chapman pitching 160 innings a year in relief? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, one of the interesting things about this spring was that uh, Chapman only appeared in a few games, but he pitched. He, I think he made four appearances and pitched eight innings, including one three-inning stint. And uh, you know, I don't know if that's if they were just stretching him out or if that's they really did have plans for him. But I think this is definitely something that's worth watching, especially for people in the cap games. You know, you're, because you can pick this guy up. But uh, you know, Araldus Chapman pitching a hundred innings is going to be so much better than the than the second closer. Um, got to watch this. Yeah, and, and if you think that if you could find three pitchers who could go 115 or 120 innings apiece over the course of the year, that's 360 innings, which at the 70-inning rate means those three guys are doing five guys' work, which means that the club can either add pinch hitters or add position players on the bench and so forth and cut down on the number of bad pitchers that they keep on the roster. The three best pitchers pitching and the, the two least good pitchers not pitching has to be a plus for the team. Absolutely. The other night, uh, the Mets game ended with the bases loaded and Ruben Tejada at the plate, and they couldn't pinch hit for him. Um, you know, that's another angle. And that's right. another thing, by the way, we were talking about the media. I mean, why isn't the media talking about this? I and mean, this it's so obvious. I mean, here's a team, they had a chance to, to beat Craig Kimbrell in a game. You're not going to get that many chances. And Ruben Tejada yeah. is sitting at the plate. You know, Taylor Teagarden, and the base is loaded in the seventh inning. Um, yeah, yeah, and they, we don't have to be Mike Marshall. They could have half Mike Marshalls and pitch 104 innings. You know, it's basically two innings a week. You know, or excuse me, four innings a week. You know, right. for, and that's, you know, twice a week, two innings. That's a, you know, that should be manageable. I mean, I don't think that intellectually taxes any manager. And But until one manager gets up and says, okay, we're going to do it. I've got the guys to do it with. Let's do it. And and but it will work, I think. And then everybody will be doing it. And in ten years, we'll say, "Can you imagine what it was like in 2014?" And that that is interesting. And you mentioned the Royals had the personnel to do it last year, and unfortunately, maybe the worst manager in baseball to ask to come up with something new or innovative. Uh, Ned Yost. Um, well, we don't need to get into Ned Yost. Let's just say not exactly an innovator in, in baseball. Uh, what what happens in fantasy baseball, though, if some or most of the teams do pick up on this idea and start saying, you know what, saves are overrated, we're just going to mix and match and we're going to get these guys. How do you think that's going to affect, especially standard rotisserie baseball, where saves are such an important category? I think it'll affect it for the better because what it'll mean is that you know the value won't all be in saves, but the value will still be greater for the better pitchers. I mean, they'll, the better you pitch, you know, obviously saves is not that critical a category, but when you add wins to it and you add the weight, the extra weight of the quality innings and extra strikeouts, of course, I think that it'll make relievers more valuable. Um, and, and it'll also make more sense to, to uh, spend your money on a really good pitcher as opposed to a guy who, you know, anybody can get 40 saves in a season, so... I think it'll be good for us. I agree with you, and I think the uh, the potential is there for saves to become much more widely distributed and therefore not so critical a component of player value for an individual guy. It's fairly ridiculous when you think that a, a borderline closer, and there's lots of them in, in baseball, has more value by virtue of this one stat than pitchers who are clearly superior across the board and that given your druthers in a real baseball situation, you'd way rather have the guy who's striking out 11, not walking anybody, getting these great innings, but not getting saves over a guy who's you know, pitching to a 350 ERA with a 130 whip, but happens to be in the closer situation like uh, Tommy Hunter, for instance, in Baltimore. You know, he's getting saves, but he's not much help beyond that. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that's true, and I think that the real advantage will be in the uh, in the interim period where some teams are doing it and some and other teams aren't. Right. So I think that you know, if, for all these years we've been waiting for it to happen, I still think it's got to happen at some point, and we just have to keep our eyes open and take advantage of it, especially in the early part of when they do do it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy. And Gene, something else we've seen this season is what feels like an unprecedented rash of injuries. Big injuries, small injuries, season-ending injuries, injuries that are not season-ending but definitely are diminishing player production. And yet, if you believe what you read in the media, we are being told that today's players are the best conditioned in baseball history, that their teams are taking more care than ever with player training and player physical development and that sort of thing. But it seems like all of these things can't be true at the same time. What gives? They can't be true at the same time. Um, I, I'm sure they're right when they say that they've never paid more attention to it. Um, but there seems to be something wrong with the premises involved here um, because whatever they're doing is not working. Um, were I the owner of a major league team, I would get my trainers and my all my medical personnel, and I would say, look, I want you guys to find out what's wrong here. What are you doing wrong? They're all doing the same things. I mean, it's not keeping anybody off the DL. It's not keeping them off the DL for shorter periods of time. Um, something's not working. Um, I'm not a biomechanic. Is that the word? I don't um, know. I don't know what the answer is, but it, it what they're doing now is not working. I remember Whitey Herzog um, back in the late 80s was saying, these guys, they all eat is chicken and fish. They never eat steak anymore. They never have a beer. I, maybe that's it. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but uh, who knows? I, whatever they're doing is wrong. Somebody's got to do something different. And the stretching exercises, you know, I mean, it could be something as simple as weights. I mean, I know that both of us are old enough to remember the days when baseball players were forbidden to lift weights and yeah. to bulk up. And and the, the fact of the matter is strength is somewhat important to this game, but it's not the be-all and end-all. I, I mean, it's more a game of coordination and skill and hand-eye coordination than raw muscle power. So, I mean, flexibility seems to me to be more important than strength, quick reactions more important than strength. Maybe it is the weightlifting, or maybe they need to do it differently. Uh, I don't know. As I say, I'm not a professional, but some of these professionals are falling down on the job, and when that happens, if you're a good professional, you ask yourself why, and you do something about it. Well, our mutual friend Joe Sheehan wrote on his uh, Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter within the last week or so that... uh, He's observed, and uh, I'll ask your opinion about wh- whether you you have noticed it too, or and that is that pitchers are using their middle relief guys as basically throwaway parts. They ask them to go out, and this has contributed to the high strikeout rates, just go out there for an inning, throw as hard as you can, and when your arm falls off, we'll just throw you away and pay out your contract and bring up the next guy to fill that role and throw as hard as he can, and, and you're seeing... Uh, he he argues that you're seeing a, the higher strikeout rate as one result, but you might also say you're also s- seeing more pitcher injuries because of this completely all-out approach to coming into games with the specialization of relievers. Well, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, and there might be something to it. Um, but I, I, the relievers don't seem to be getting hurt more than the starters, um, or more than the position players, for that matter. Um I mean, anything that's a possibility is worth looking at, but I, I'm not sure that that's, that that's right. Um, I think that pitchers in the past always did pace themselves, and there's something to be said for that. But I don't know. We won't know until these guys go out there and pitch two innings throwing as hard as they can or three innings. And then if, they have the, you know, if there's an even bigger increase in injuries, then we can say, aha. But when everybody's doing the same things, it's hard to tell. Yeah, you know what's a causative factor and what's just a coincidence. What about the possibility that the uh, PED explosion that we uh, read about, thanks to Major League Baseball demonizing the players on that basis, uh, it, there are a lot of people who think that PEDs are still in widespread use in baseball. They're just the players are smarter about not getting caught. Uh, certainly, we have some evidence to that effect because every guy that they have caught has tested negative for PEDs. It's all been paper trail and canceled checks and so forth that gets them into hot water. And I'm wondering, could it be the case that the bulking up through 
PEDs and, and uh, bodybuilding and weightlifting and so forth is continuing to have an effect or maybe even an increased effect because the human frame can only stand so much strengthening before connecting tissues start to give way. Yeah, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, we, sometimes things that make sense are true and sometimes they're not. Um, it could also be the opposite, that um, that players are coming down off PEDs and that's what's causing the injuries. It could be a kind. It could be both of those things. That's right. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're we're in uncharted waters here, and you and I, there's no way for us to know until there, you know, until there's more systematic and there's more time um, to look at it. But I think both of those could be possibilities, and they could both be true at the same time. Maybe I wonder if in the future we're going to be paying more attention as we come into our drafts looking at body type. Because I think of guys like um, Ichiro, um, Alfonso Soriano, coincidentally both Yankees, but that's not the point. They have those very wiry frames, lots of fast twitch muscles. I remember I remember reading a story about Alfonso Soriano in which a kinesiologist looked at him and said he's nothing but a mass of fast twitch muscles, very lean, very flexible, and loaded with these muscles. And he's hardly ever had any DL time. Ichiro's hardly ever had any DL time. And it's not. And guys like that, maybe if you spot a, a, a situation where you have a choice between an Ichiro Soriano body type versus a, a, you know, a bulkier, stronger looking guy like Billy Butler or somebody like that, that you might want to start leaning towards, pardon the expression, the leaner guy. I like that theory. I, I think there's something to it. Um, but as you were speaking, I kept picturing Mike Trout in my mind and yeah. how chiseled um, he is. But maybe, you know, maybe that's just a, an illusion of the television. Maybe he's really like that, too. He's just naturally a muscular guy because um, he's so good. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think, that the, I, I think there's something to that, um, intuitively, anyway. And, of course, Mike Trout's still young, and we don't know how his body's going to react to the wear and tear if he's... Uh, if, and I'm not suggesting for a second that he's using PEDs. He could just be a naturally big guy. But having said that, it could be that being a naturally big guy makes you more prone to, to baseball-related injuries. And I just look at his teammate, Josh Hamilton. Here's a guy of a very similar sort of body type, at least from the non-professional viewpoint of a guy just watching on TV. But Josh Hamilton is a big, burly, muscular guy. He's he's very big in the upper body. He looks like a football player. He looks like a tight end or a, or a outside linebacker, same as Mike Trout. And Josh Hamilton started off... You know, he had lifestyle issues as well. But, boy, there's a guy who had a lot of injuries. Yeah, I mean, it, as I say, intuitively it makes sense. And were I running a Major League Baseball team, I'd be looking at all these things and demanding answers. And, and uh, uh, one, one final, final example just, just jumped into, into my mind. mind. Uh, uh, the, the greatest hitter, hitter who ever played the game, the game was, was a very, very thin, thin wiry, wiry guy. guy. Well, um if you're talking about Aaron or Mays, it, it applies. Ted Williams. Ted Williams. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I was thinking of Babe Ruth, but uh, <laughs> wiry, wiry was not the adjective that came to mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you said you definitely said a mouthful. Gene, when we spoke during spring training, you explained how you separate players into foundation players, building blocks, and so on when you're thinking about putting together your roster at draft. And I'm wondering, does that roster structure carry forward during the season, or how do you manage it? Yeah, I think roughly it does. Uh, you, you have your foundation players, your building blocks, and your filler um, and yeah, I mean, we're talking about categories here and, and the positions which are the means to, to get those categories. Yes, I do think it applies uh, throughout the, you know, there'll be changes of injuries and, you know, uh, one guy can drop from a foundation to a building block and another guy can elevate from filler to even foundation player. Uh, but the concept is, is, is the same, yeah. I, I, I've taken this to heart in my own fantasy over the years in building rosters, and what I'm always on the lookout for during the year is an opportunity to upgrade from a filler player on the free agent wire through trade, whatever I can do. If I can drop one filler player and replace him with a uh, building block player, I'll do it. And if I can replace a building block player with a foundation player, of course, I'll do that too. And from that point of view, it's really a, a helpful guide to help figure out how you want to roster, manage your roster during the season. Right. I mean, basically, it's a variation of the tier system. 
you know, tier one, tier two, tier three. Right. Um, yeah, uh, and there's a certain amount of changing of the guard in baseball every year. You know, skills change. I mean, they're not carved in stone. Right. Players get better and worse all the time. Um, so, yeah, I do think it holds up. And, of course, as you said, sometimes the players on your roster will help you out by moving up into the next tier just through dint of their own efforts, and, and then you, that's how you win a lot of leagues in a lot of instances. Unfortunately, sometimes they'll also go the other way, which is where you start running into trouble. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey, Wise Guy Baseball. And Gene, uh, during the season, we ask our experts to talk about facts and flukes, various players who are underperforming or overperforming our expectations, and whether it's for real or whether we can expect it to change. Uh, the story of the season so far, I think, has been Giancarlo Stanton of the Marlins, Gene, we expected this guy to generate some power, but he's on pace for a 50-homer, 200-RBI season, and he's hitting well over 200 for a batting average, which is way above what we would have expected. How, obviously, this performance looks fluky, but how much of it could be fact? Much of, much of it is fact. Um, I think he's going to lead the league in intentional walks. Um, the team desperately needs someone to bat behind him. to it, it, That won't stop him from leading, the, but it'll help the team. Um Yelich at the top of the order is a big factor here because he's, I mean, he's, and Osuna is a little hot and playing a little over his head, but he's a good player, I think. Um, makes a difference. I mean, he's got guys on base, and a lot of times they're going to have to pitch to him. As you said, nobody doubted his power for a second. Um, I think he's essentially for real. I don't think he's going to hit 300, but I think we could see the the upper range, of, uh, and we will see, the upper range of his batting average skill, which means he's going to hit 280, 285. You know, no, everybody thought that he had a shot to hit 50 home runs. Um, yeah, as long as he stays on the field. That is the uh, that is going to be the issue for sure. He has had some health problems in the past. Another big, bulky, muscular guy, by the way. Um, three middle infielders are in the top ten of value as we speak, uh, Gene. Are any of Alexei Ramirez, D. Gordon, or Brian Dozier a fact, or are they all flukes? Well, I think the the extent of them is, is a fluke, but I think the basic are facts for all of them. Um, again, nobody ever doubted D. Gordon's ability to run. I mean, he, he seems to be getting on base, and you know, while as I say, the degree of it is is a fluke. Um, I think he's for real. I think he's settled in at second base. I think that that helped him to get off shortstop. Um, so I think he's essentially for real. Alexei Ramirez. Um, he was a guy that I ragged on for years because he always used to go too high. And then last year he went too low and was a bargain. Um, he never ran as much as he could have. Even He really is fast, and his, even though he's not as young as he used to be, his speed is held up. He did figure to hit a few more home runs. Um, so I think he's going to be a – I think the people who drafted him are going to be very happy at the end of the year even though, you know, he'll come down a little bit. And as far as Dozier is concerned, I mean, he went into this season being a guy who could hit, who could have a 20-20 season, and it was an excellent fallback at second base after, you know, the guys who always go too high are gone. Um, I mean, he's not hitting for batting average, and I don't think he will, but I, I think the speed and the power skills are real. Well, you have to wish Brian Dozier was playing in a, in a more homer-friendly park if you're looking for more, more power from him. At Target Field's a tough place to hit home runs. Uh, yeah, it's much tougher on left-handed batters than it is on right-handed batters. So, Speaking of twins and power, Chris Colabello at the early stage of the season leading the American League in RBIs. Is Chris Colabello, generally speaking, a factor of fluke? Looks like he's changed his style a little bit. He's going for more contact, and he's getting more contact. He was more of a power hitter um uh, in his minor league career, he only has one home run, and I don't think he's going to hit for a lot of power. Um, but I do think that it, he obviously he's not going to hit 350, but I think that if he hits 280, the RBIs can will essentially hold up, and he'll be a, a nice serendipitous sort of player. for. Um, um, so we'll call him partial fact, partial fluke. Albert Pujols has put up over $20 value so far this season. Do you think this is a resurgence based on fact, or is it a temporary blast from the past and a fluke? Definitely a fact. Um, he's a Hall of Famer. They do not fall apart in their early 30s. Um, this was utterly predictable, and he was a great pick this year, um, especially at the levels where he was going in the in the third round, um, you know, in the, at, at a $30 price. Um, you know, of course, the only question with him is health, but I don't think there was 
you know, he's a Hall of Fame player. That That's not what Hall of Fame players do. They don't die when they're 32 years old. If, in fact, he's 32 years old, and there's always been some question well, there about is, that. Yeah, there is that. But, you know, but as I say, Hall of Famers, you know, I mean, most Hall of Famers hold up well into their, you know, into their late 30s. Um, so, you know, assuming that kind of unknowable, I think it's it's a fact, and I think it's going to continue, and I wouldn't have any problem with taking him next year. The only worry for me is this uh, problem with his feet, and then, because remember, did in Mark McGuire at a younger age than this, and or around the same age as this, uh, it's always a concern that plantar fasciitis a uh, little bit d- difficult to deal with. Uh, Kyle Seeger of the Mariners was a really hot commodity coming into drafts. Uh, a lot of uh, touts recommending that Seager was going to be a, a real batting stud. Here he is, he's under 200, and he's shown absolutely no power. What's going on with Kyle Seager? Is this a fact or a fluke? Um, well, again, the degree is a fluke, but there was no reason for him to be elevated over... Uh, I'll give you two players. One is doing well and one is not doing well. Aramis Ramirez and Pablo Sandoval. There was no reason for him to be chosen over either of those guys, um, or Arenado on the on the Rockies, even Chase Headley um, on the Padres. I don't see what the fascination ever is with choosing a Mariners hitter. Um, they have such a handicap in, in in their ballpark, and I'm not knocking him. I, I mean, I think he's a good player in a reasonable thing but you know how this happens sometimes is the guy gets hot and then his draft day gets closer he keeps going higher and higher and higher and it's um i think people talk themselves into it um again he's a good player but he's not he's nothing special uh, there's a lot of guys in his class and there was no reason for him to go ahead of any of them and our last hitter i'd like to look at uh Kansas City designated hitter Billy Butler is also batting under 200, and he looks completely lost at the plate. Again, this is a guy that a lot of touts uh, preseason this year looked at and said, here comes the breakout, which I think they've been saying now since uh, about 1961, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's just year after year of unmet expectations with occasional hints of what might be. Is Billy Butler becoming this player as a fact, or is it still a fluke? You know, I think he's the one guy that I think there might be some fact aspect to it um obviously i don't expect him to hit under 200 uh but i think it's going to be hard for him um to get much over 280 this year and of course he doesn't have great power um they pinch run for him so his runs scored aren't going to be good um yeah i if i owned billy butler which i'm glad i don't i'd be i'd be concerned and i'd be looking to maybe talk somebody into the uh you know people they tell you not to not to sell low but um, if you can get better than what you're giving up, I'd trade him. Yeah, I, I'm, I've been a Billy Butler owner in the past, and I've had one or two of those, boy, this is this is almost good kind of years. I'm going to hang on to him or reacquire him, and it always seems to come out as a disappointment. Uh, Gene, moving on to the pitcher's mound, I think I know the answer to this one, but I want to ask you about Aaron Harang, an 070 ERA and an 082 whip, despite a 22-12 to strikeout-to-walk rate. The question here is not fact or fluke. I think that's obvious, but how much of a fluke? How high is up? <laughs> um, I would trade him today. Um, he's Aaron Harang. I don't think anything has changed. I, I watched him pitch against the Mets the other night, and he was you know, throwing his junk up there. Um, one thing that's worth bearing in mind is um, years ago, Matt Olkin um had research that showed that finesse pitchers excel in April. Um, I haven't redone the research, maybe I'm too lazy, um, but it made sense to me at the time in the in the sense that uh, hitting is timing and these guys throw off batters' timing. And they, the batters haven't really gotten their timing down yet. But I, if I owned Aaron Harang, I would say thank you, Lord, and trade him today. This raises an interesting question in my mind, Gene. We know what Aaron Harang is, and therefore we look at anything like his current performance and say this is there's, this is a wild outlier. And, of course, uh, I think that uh, you're right, that if you can trade him for anything of value, you're probably wisely um, situated to do so. But how do you know if the guy has actually made a step forward? Is it strictly a question of age Aaron Harang's a relatively old pitcher so the you know can't teach an old uh, old dog new tricks kind of theory comes into play but is it possible for an Aaron Harang to do something fundamentally different that changes his value proposition yeah it is possible that they come up with a new pitch or you know sometimes they move to the other side of the rubber I haven't heard anything Uh, 
that you know I haven't heard anything specific about what's causing it. I mean, as I say, I watched him the other night. Um, he's finessing. He's junk balling. He's throwing a lot of pitches that are not strikes. Um, he even walked when he had his no hitter going. I think he walked five or six. So um, I don't think there's been any fundamental change in this case, and that's why I'm advocating flee. Masahiro Tanaka of the Yankees has somewhat defied expectations. Uh, I remember in the preseason, uh, Yankees general manager Brian Cashman even cautioned that he said Tanaka would be a third or fourth quality starter. But so far this year, he looks like an ace. He's got a 205 ERA, an, uh, a whip under .8, and uh, 28 strikeouts against two walks. Is all of this fact or any of it fact, any of it fluke? How does it balance out? Well, I think Cashman was trying to reduce expectations, and I think that was a wise thing for him to do. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Tanaka is a, a good pitcher. Um, how good it has yet to be determined. Um, this will be an interesting week for him. He's a, I think he's getting two starts this week at home. Um, my problem with him is he's a righty in Yankee Stadium, um, so he's gonna. He needs to be better than he is to put up the same numbers as a pitcher in you know Minnesota or in Pittsburgh. Um, I think he's at least partially for real. Um, uh, whether he's a lead or not um, remains to be seen. Right now, I would call him a good number two pitcher, and and and, and we'll see what happens. And the the only cautionary note I had when I was looking at Tanaka after his tremendous start was that uh, the the opponents were Toronto, Baltimore, and most recently the Cubs, against whom he looked fantastic. But you know who doesn't look fantastic against the Cubs usually? Right. Um, it makes a little, yeah, it's a little more meaningful against the Blue Jays and the Orioles. Um, also, I mean, his big pitch is a splitter. It's a fantastic pitch. Um, and it probably, I mean, the most likely scenario would be that he'll pro- that he'll continue to be good, and then it, will the hitters learn to lay off that pitch? Um, that's going to be the key to his, uh, whether he's a, a number two pitcher or a true ace, I think. We talked about Jason Vargas uh, a little earlier, off to a tremendous start as well. Looks like an ace with a 124-093 and 16 strikeouts against six walks, which is a very nice ratio. Any chance this is a fact? Well, the two things he has going for him are his park and his outfield defense. So I don't think, uh, I wouldn't go so far as I would with Harang, you know, flee. Uh, but I think that I would not expect any more than a good home start play. I would be really careful about using them on the road. Assuming you're playing in a league that allows you to make those kind of decisions, a lot still don't. Uh, another tout darling coming into the season, Gene, was Danny Salazar of the Indians. So far this year, uh, 771 ERA, a uh, whip right around two. What do you make of Danny Salazar as a factor fluke? Well, his velocity's down almost three miles an hour, and that is a real warning sign. Um, yeah, other than that, um, a little bit of a small sample size last year. So there was, you know, his control looked good. The question was, is this for real? You know, there's something I've been I've mentioned in Wise Guy Baseball for many years, which I call Billy Koch syndrome, um, where a pitcher all of a sudden looks like he's he's emerged, he's found his control in a particular season, and it turns out to be an illusion. Um, so far, that's been true of Salazar. Um, he's got great stuff. I mean, he's still got the changeup, but with, you know, when he's when you're throwing 93 instead of 96, um, he's probably hurt. What about Homer Bailey, 816, 202? I, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with him at all. Just a you know a few kind of bad starts. His control is a little bit off, but I think he looks great. Um, I own him in my keeper league. I have no intention of dropping him. I'm just going to ride him out. I think he'll be fine. And finally, uh, would you gamble on any of these slow starters? Henderson Alvarez down in Miami. Phil Hughes got his first win the other night as a twin. And Felix Dubrant has been hot and cold in Boston. Well, of the three, uh, I would take Hughes as a home start play if I had to. Um Dubron still has some potential, but he's not really a skimmable type of pitcher, which is what I like in in, in these kind of crapshoot guys. And Henderson Alvarez just doesn't miss enough bats. Um, I would be. I don't think that he's going to be. And of course, he doesn't strike. Yeah, he's not striking guys out. He's an extreme ground ball pitcher, but I don't think he's he's enough. I think he's a little too hittable. All right, Gene, uh, this has been fantastic, full of insight, uh, lots of fun as well. Um, where can listeners get more from Gene McCaffrey? 
Well, it's too late for this year, but if you want to go to wiseguybaseball.com, um, that's where I uh, that's where I hold court and do my blog at this time of year and try to make sense out of what's going on. And of course, before we let you go, we always count on you to recommend a cool tune to listen to uh, the pillows before. Uh, um, what was the la- last time? It was the Ravenettes. The Ravenettes. Yeah, that's a fantastic song as well. Uh, what do you got going these days? Okay, there's a band called the Waldos. They're an offshoot of the Heartbreakers with Walter Lure, who was a guitar player with Johnny Thunders. They made an album in the 90s called Red Party that's well worth anybody's attention. But for now, I'm going to recommend a song from that album called Flight. It's like gritty power pop. If that appeals to you, you know what to do. Gene, thanks very much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Another outstanding session, and we'll have you back on again later in the year. Thanks a lot, Patrick. You are the best. Gene McCaffrey is a longtime fantasy baseball authority and the writer and publisher of the Wise Guy Baseball Annual. Our HQ commentaries are next. The Metric Minute and Minor League Minute are coming up. This is Baseball HQ Radio. probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is gone, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the major league. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. Stephen Nickrand looks at very early sell-high targets in his Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide column. Ray Murphy's Speculator column makes more snap judgments on those slow starting players. And Dan Becker's Batting Buyer's Guide column looks at part two of his stop tinkering idea, focusing on the early most dropped hitters. 
Plus, we have regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes, performance validation, buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, and much more. All in all, it's great fantasy intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have minor league analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute. And leading off, it's the Metric Minute. And here to tell us about using Leverage Index to help us in our search for a team's next closer, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. April is up to its old tricks again this season with a multitude of closer changes, bullpens and flux, and plenty of time and attention being paid to that age-old question of who will be Team X's next closer. At BaseballHQ.com, we use a metric called Leverage Index to help us answer that question. Leverage Index initially was developed by Tom Tango. It measures the amount of swing and the possible change of win probability when a reliever enters the game. So it says how much is on the line when that reliever toes the mound. To make it simple, these scores are indexed to an average value of 1. So if a reliever's leverage index is higher than 1, that team's manager is showing greater confidence in them compared to relievers with leverage indexes below 1. So, so far through 2014's first three weeks, there are a few interesting non-closers near the top of the leverage index spectrum. Guys like Daniel Webb of the White Sox, who actually has the highest leverage index so far through April 19th. Uh, Gonzalez German for the Mets, Carlos Martinez in St. Louis, Drew Storen in Washington. These guys are being used in the highest leverage situations, and they could be next up if there's a change in closer for that team. Leverage index scores can be found on BaseballHQ.com by going to the team section and then bullpen indicators. They're also cited frequently in Doug Dennis's bullpen buyer's guides columns, which appear every week. So if you're trying to get ahead in the inevitable search for a team's next closer, be sure to check out Leverage Index and our bullpen indicators on BaseballHQ.com. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for the BaseballHQ.com site and talks about various site metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's the Minor League Minute, and with a look at Giants right-handed pitching prospect Kyle Crick, here's Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. In this week's edition of the Minor League Minute, we take a look at the San Francisco Giants' Kyle Crick. The 21-year-old Crick was a supplemental first-round pick in the Pitching Rich 2011 draft and comes after hitters with a plus mid-90s fastball that tops out at 98 miles an hour. His heater has good late life and he's able to maintain velocity deep into most of his starts, which is really important. Crick complements the fastball with a plus breaking ball and an average changeup that will really need to improve as he matures. At 6'4", 225 pounds, Crick has an ideal power pitching frame. He has simple, repeatable mechanics and has plus arm strength. Crick did miss the start of the 2013 season with a strained oblique muscle, but was lights out when he returned to action. In 14 starts at High A San Jose, Crick was 3-1 with a very impressive 1.57 ERA. He does sometimes struggle a bit with control and last year walked 5.1 for 9, but he also struck out 12.5 for 9. Crick still needs time in the minors to harness his electric stuff but he should be ready to make his major league debut in late 2014 or early 2015 and has the potential to be a fantasy stud. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports have looked at Texas infielder Luis Sardinas, Tampa right-hander C.J. Riefenhauser, and more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And of course, this is usually where we play our theme song, but in honor of Gene McCaffrey, we're playing his song, appropriately called This Is The End. And that is Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday Tout Edition for April 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 27 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday Tout Edition, the baseball wise guy. It was Gene McCaffrey, one of our favorite guests on the show. And time flies when you're having fun, I'll just say that. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Metric Minute commentator was analyst Brian Bloomfield, and our minor league analyst Rob Gordon had the minor league minute. 
I'm Patrick Abbott. I have a research piece on the site right now looking at where saves come from. And of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. And feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back Friday with our News and Notes edition featuring League Watch News reports, Todd Zola, and Master Notes. And next Tuesday, it'll be the Zen Master of Fantasy Baseball, Laura Michaels of MastersBall.com, on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.